Welcome to Schoolhouse Equity in Education. This is Allison R. Brown, and I am your host. Charlottesville now holds a place in history alongside Charleston, South Carolina, Albany, Georgia, Selma, Alabama. Yet another place in history where this country's racist origins have burst forth and exposed the underbelly of the nation's mindset. It seems we are addicted to hate, addicted to hierarchy. Not only that, but in an environment like this, it can be nearly impossible for people of color to stay mentally well, to heal from existing trauma and prevent additional trauma. Why don't we talk about this American addiction to hate and how we can maintain our sanity as we work to fight off our addiction? Today, my guest is the brilliant and phenomenal Dr. Nzinga Ajabu Harrison. Nzinga is a double board certified physician. I'm not even really sure what that means. Uh, In addiction medicine and psychiatry, she is the chief medical officer for Anka Behavioral Health Incorporated. And most importantly, of course, she is one of my dearest friends. Welcome to Schoolhouse Nzinga. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you, Allison. So happy to be here with you. That was a great introduction, by the way. Thank you. (laughs) Well, first, tell me, how are you doing in this political climate? I'm doing great. You know, I think I'm probably struggling in the same ways that other people are struggling amidst the climate that we have in the country right now. And so really just working on using my own coping skills, you know, the same coping skills that I try to help people in my professional and personal life develop to just kind of manage the negativity so that it doesn't become all-consuming and, you know, undermine our ability to make change. Well, talk to me and think about what is addiction and what do you tell people is the way to or the ways to fix it? People typically think of addiction uh, to drugs. So that can be correct, right? The definition there would be continuing to use alcohol, or other drugs despite negative consequences is kind of a wide umbrella definition. But people often don't appreciate that we really can get addicted to any behavior that taps the dopamine system in the brain. And, you know, you can't ask me a question without me talking about kind of the function of the brain. So I'll just Mm -hmm. go ahead and jump right in on that. So we kind of have this system in our brain, which is really in the part of the brain that we share with all animals. And it's instinctual and it drives our motivations and it sends information forward to the part of our brain called the prefrontal cortex where we have our higher thinking and decision making and impulse control. Um, But really our impulses come from the deep part of our brain. And the purpose of this system really was just to motivate humans to engage in those behaviors that would keep you alive as an individual and allow the species to propagate. And unfortunately, there are behaviors and drugs, both natural and synthetic, that can send a much bigger signal in this pathway Mm -hmm. than healthy behaviors. And so just neurobiologically, your brain interprets those as more important than healthy things because the dopamine signal is bigger. Mm -hmm. And so sex is the natural determinant of dopamine. And we know that sex addiction certainly happens to people. Food and water are natural determinants of dopamine signal. And we definitely know that people develop compulsive 
eating disorders. And many people don't know that people also develop compulsive drinking of water disorders along with kind of other medical conditions. Drinking of water, like they drink too much water? Yeah, literally drink so much water that they, you know, give themselves electrolyte imbalance and seizures and coma and death. Mm. You know, it's all kind of biologically intricate, but interesting Because what is really difficult, I think, for people is because the symptoms of addiction, whether it's to alcohol, other drugs, sex, gambling, also runs through that same pathway, Mm -hmm. food, et cetera, Um, hate, Mm -hmm. like you said. So it's a bit of a different pathway for hate, but our emotional pathway is also in that deep part of the brain that's instinctual and can operate on its own without our higher thinking centers. It can be difficult for people to appreciate addiction as an illness or as a disease because the symptoms are manifest in behavior Mm -hmm. and the symptoms are manifest in emotions and the symptoms are manifest in the way a person thinks or the decisions that they make. And we have this belief that we have complete and utter control of those things and the way we think and feel and speak and behave is always voluntary. And so I've really spent my career kind of trying to help people understand the involuntary parts of how we think and feel and behave and interact with each other. And then a big part of what we do for people who are getting rehab for an addiction of whatever sort is helping them to separate the stigma and negativity that has been put on them as a person, right? Mm -hmm. You're a terrible person and that's why you drink too much. You're a terrible person and that's why you abuse painkillers. We kind of pull that out and take the more true approach, which is that you have an illness that starts in your brain and the way your brain gives symptoms or, you know, gives you an indication that it's in trouble is through your thoughts and through your emotions and through your behaviors. And if you have a stroke, through not being able to move some part of your body. Mm -hmm. But those are the four domains of the brain, thinking, feeling, behaving and physical. And so if your brain is having any illness, whether that's depression, anxiety, stroke, Alzheimer's, dementia, addiction, all of those start in the brain. And so it allows us to be more compassionate instead of thinking, oh, this person is drinking because they're a terrible person. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, this person is drinking because their dopamine system has been undermined by the signal that alcohol can send. Mm -hmm. And then you can address that as an illness rather than as a character defect. You know, I regularly refer to what we saw in Charlottesville with the murder of Heather Heyer, the severe beating of DeAndre Harris, the parade of white men in their khakis and white shirts and their torches spewing racial hatred as symptoms of this nation's racial illness. And we have yet to actually cure that illness. We will routinely focus on the symptomatic band-aids that we can place over the, the wounds that reveal themselves, like what we saw in Charlottesville. And if the illness then is an addiction to hate, to the myth of racial hierarchy, What do you do to go about fixing the brain and making sure that the brain is thinking straight instead of being really captured by this thing that it is addicted to? So I really appreciate the parallel that you're drawing between addiction 
and racism because there are absolutely parallels about how they are expressed both at the individual level and kind of systemic level and then even bigger at the societal level. Mm -hmm. And so at the risk of sounding cliche, the first step is recognizing you have a problem. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Literally. (laughs) Literally the first step. And you can apply that (laughs) to every illness. So you have a person who is addicted to alcohol. All of the people around them can see the manifestations of that illness, typically before the person can see it themselves. Mm. And then you go through a period. uh, We have this this, uh, concept called the stages of change. So pre-contemplation, you know, pre stands for before. Mm -hmm. So pre-contemplation is like, I'm not even contemplating the idea that this is a problem. Mm -hmm. And so I'll talk in two kind of parallel streams right here. So the person with alcoholism all of their family members recognize that it's a problem, but the individual is in pre-contemplation before they're even mm-hmm. contemplating the idea that there is a problem. So as far as racism goes in this country, let's talk societally, right? You have a group of individuals, usually people of color, mm-hmm. that are like, mayday, mayday, yeah. <laughs> we still have a problem. Yeah. And then you have a more general segment of society that is in pre-contemplation. And then the next stage of change is contemplation. And so think of this kind of like when I give presentations, I actually use the justice scales as the picture here. Mm -hmm. And so pros are on one side and cons are on the other side. So speaking of the individual with alcoholism, the cons start to affect the people around them. Right. And they realize there's a problem. The individual still, the pros of drinking are outweighing the cons. As the balance starts to change and the cons start to stack up, then a person moves into contemplation, which is, hmm, this might be a problem. This could be bad. Right? This could be bad. And, well, for me as an individual, this drinking Mm -hmm. might be a problem. Mm -hmm. And so if we go to the kind of race discussion in society, Mm -hmm. I think that veil really pulled back for a lot of people when President was trumped even after he espoused so much racial dialogue through the primary and the general election, right? Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people pulled it back like, whoa, we might have a problem. They entered into contemplation. Now, some people were already in contemplation. Somebody were already in the next stage, which is action, right? At action, you take the first step. You know what? I admit this is a problem, and I've decided to make a change. Okay, so the decision happens between contemplation and action, and then you move into some action to start trying to fix whatever the problem is. Mm -hmm. So for the person with alcoholism, this is the first step in the 12 steps. I admitted I was powerless over alcohol, and I gave myself over to a higher power, right? I'm paraphrasing that, so I apologize to anybody who's in the program that I didn't say that word for word. But just for the concept, right, I admitted I was powerless. So one, I recognized I have a problem. And then I gave my life over. Two, I started to do something about it. I'm in action. Mm -hmm. So we come over to the racism in society. Charlottesville pushed a lot of people into action. Yes. Right? You see people saying, I can't believe this. Now, mind you, you have people of color who are like, (laughs) I could believe this. Right. Where were you? Because this has been my experience. But what we Mm -hmm. have to understand is that Getting angry at people right now who have just made it into action, let them become allies, right? Mm -hmm. Their experience is not your experience. 
what I always do is say, you know, like, as a black woman, I have an experience that a white man doesn't have. Mm -hmm. And so just fundamentally, he will not be able to understand it. He can seek to understand, which is what's moving through the stages of change. So he can be in pre-contemplation, like everything's the same for everyone. Mm -hmm. Or he can move through the stages of change and get to contemplation, like, hmm, maybe things are different for her as a Black woman, and then get to action, what can I do about it, Yeah, right? But as a thin person, maybe I'm in contemplation for what it's like to be overweight, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. As a tall person, maybe I'm in pre-contemplation for what it's like to be short. Right. As a straight person, maybe I'm in pre-contemplation for what it's like to be LGBTQIRA. Yeah. And so, and you will not. It's rather, not an experience you will ever have. It's not an experience I will ever have. And so, the responsibility that we have to take. Again, mm -hmm. the first step, number one, is admitting, even if I don't have that experience, I admit that this is a problem. Yeah. And I think that's what Charlottesville did for a lot of people, the fact that, one, those guys were just like incredibly explicit yeah. with their hate, <laughs> They were right? very clear. There was no... <laughs> I mean, there was no explaining that away. And so I think that kind of put the issue in front of people in a way that was like, holy crap, yeah. this exists in I the can't US? call this anything else. I cannot call it anything else. And I mm -hmm. saw a meme that I thought was fantastic that had, uh, you know, like the, the picture of Charlottesville that's going around with the guy screaming and holding his tiki torch yeah. and it's kind of a group of white guys and they're all like in the throes of rage screaming out these hateful things and they drew arrows to each of them they were like what you see is nazi and fascist and racist and then underneath was the exact same picture again and it said what i see is mortgage broker future mm. judge attorney banker right and so it was drawing into their experience like these are people who are making decisions that affect people's lives mm -hmm. implicitly. So that pros and cons balance was able kind of to raise when that explicit display of hate was there. But we we can't say like, I can't believe you didn't know this was there before because that hadn't been their experience. So now they're here yeah. and now we've we taken know. the first step, right? We're mm -hmm. out of pre-contemplation yeah. of let that Charlottesville, I think when a white woman died as a result of racism, yeah. that pulled the mask off for a lot of people. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. People will get mad and be like, how many black people have died? Yeah. Right? Yeah. And I feel that and I get those same emotions. But how many gay people have been beaten dead in the street? Yeah. How many transgender women have been beaten to death? Correct, correct, correct. So when it becomes your experience, just... That is fundamental humanity. And leverage When it, it. becomes your experience, yeah, yes, yeah. you are motivated to be able to see it for what it is, and then that allows you to call it a problem, and then that allows you to make an action plan. And so to answer your question, what do we do about it? Mm -hmm. I think we put our arms around everyone who is shocked hmm. and take this opportunity while their minds and their hearts are open and really share our experiences because we need this nation to not only condemn explicit racism, mm -hmm. we also need this nation to condemn implicit racism. Implicit racism is more likely dangerous, in my opinion. If part of the solution is to 
wrap your arms around those who are just now coming to awareness and coming to at least contemplation, if not yet action. You know, I'll admit I'm tired, Nzinga. I'm exhausted. (laughs) And I'm, I'm relatively young in this, right? Relatively. My kids would completely beg to differ, but that's, that's neither here nor there. But if I'm not taking care of me mentally, right, and then I step into this to try to help move folks along to a point of complete understanding, if not empathy, but understanding to get them to action, how do I take care of myself? What is the wellness strategy for people who have been living this for a long time and who find themselves right now tired. saying, I'm so tired. So again, the first step is recognizing that you're tired. Mm-hmm. So a lot of, um, especially activist hearted people mm-hmm. like ourselves, go, 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 mm-hmm. right? Like the mission is always at hand and you can work the mission to the point of killing yourself. And mm-hmm. that helps no one. And so everyone's wellness routine will be different. But what I can say, number one, is that you have to sleep, period. Mm. Not getting enough sleep actually reduces the functioning of the part of the brain that thinks and allows the part of the brain that feels to just go on unchecked, right? Mm -hmm. And none of us, none of us is an okay person when our emotions are unchecked by our thinking brain, okay? Mm -hmm. (laughs) No matter No matter how great a person you are and how good your heart is and all of that, when your thinking brain is offline, what rises to the surface is not humanity and compassion, okay? It is disdain and exhaustion and frustration. That's when you yell at people, right? Like, I find myself yelling at the kids. I find myself yelling at the dog, right? And I'm like, oh, okay. It's time to go to sleep. It is time to go to sleep. So you have to sleep. These are the general parts that everybody has to have in their armamentarian. You have to sleep. The appropriate amount of sleep varies per person. It's on a bell curve between five and a half hours of sleep and nine and a half hours of sleep per night. You know what yours is. is the amount of sleep where you go to sleep and then you wake up and you feel restored. Okay? So you have to put a routine in place. That means not looking at your devices right before you go to bed, Mm -hmm. not looking at emotional content right before you go to bed. So not Facebook, not CNN. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes I make myself watch Fox News. I have to be like really restored to be able to do that. (laughs) That's like first thing in the morning. (laughs) Yeah. Like my ears literally ring from all the dog whistles. But, you know, I have to be like really restored to do that. So you have to have to have to avoid and most negative content, have a bedtime routine. So one thing about our brains is that our brains crave routine. You know why you get hungry at 1130 every day? Because you usually eat at noon, right? Mm-hmm. Your brain anticipates what's coming based on what the pattern has to say. How does she know my life? Exactly. You know why you're hungry right now? <laughs> and your brain, your stomach is like, oh, the brain has prepared hungry. me to eat. Where's my food? Exactly. You do the same thing with your bedtime routine. So Mm -hmm. do the exact same thing every night. Go to bed as much as possible at the same time. Make sure you have enough hours. Number two is being hydrated. Mm -hmm. Every single cell in our body needs water to work. That includes your brain. So people, you know, they'll be like, when they get dehydrated, they're like, oh, I'm thirsty or I feel a little sluggish. Well, your brain is also sluggish. And you know what part of your brain goes offline first? Your thinking, thinking brain. Part, and then right. there you have your emotional brain. Correct. Same story. 
So you have to sleep, you have to hydrate. Number three, you have to practice stress reduction. Now, this is something I can credit my husband with. As much as I've been preaching this my entire professional life to people, because I'm a psychiatrist, Mm -hmm. and coping and mental fitness is like the space that I live in, I never did any yoga or any meditation of any type. And about two years ago, I don't know what happened. He came across something that said yoga will make you live longer, and that's all he needed to hear. So he was like, we're doing yoga (laughs) every day. Listen, listen, Mm -hmm. I can't say my flexibility has improved much, but what I can say (laughs) is that my ability to sit with a quiet mind Mm. has exponentially improved. Mm -hmm. And that ability to sit with a quiet mind, even in the midst of an emotional storm, has done wonders for my ability to tolerate everything that has been going on. Because I've had a racing mind my entire life. Mm -hmm. I figured that's just how it goes, right? Being able to have a quiet mind literally quiets all of the physiological processes in your body. So at this point, we're kind of all walking around in an adrenaline state, right? Like in a chronic fight or flight posture. You feel feel it. it. Yeah, Mm -hmm. you feel it. And that's shortening your life. Mm. One, it's taking your thinking brain offline. But two, it's making your heart rate faster. It's making your blood pressure higher. It's making your blood sugar higher. It's making more pressure on your joints because your muscles are stiff. It's Mm. giving you back pain. It's giving you neck strain, right? All of those things are flowing from kind of the negative emotion overload that we're all experiencing. And so I cannot emphasize enough. You don't have to become a yogi, okay? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You don't have to be like walking around like namaste to everybody. You don't, you don't have to do that. And here we do yoga by Adrian. She has free videos on YouTube and she has a playlist, which is five to 10 minute yogas. You can find five minutes. Yeah. And just train yourself to be able to get into that quiet space for your mind. And then, of course, you know, you have to make sure you regularly, intentionally schedule fun things in your life that allow you to check out. Mm-hmm. So a lot of us work, 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 and we balance the rest of our lives around work. And we really have to live, 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 mm. and balance work around our lives. Yeah. So sleep, hydrate, meditate or yoga of some sort. And fun. And live. The last thing is reach out when you need help. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll actually make that a sandwich. I'll make that the first thing and the last thing. So those are our two pieces of bread and everything else is the meat in the middle. Mm-hmm. Reach out when you need help, which means you have to be able to recognize when you need help. Mm-hmm. A lot of times we can't recognize it, but the people around us can. And so you need to have those people that you trust enough that they can say to you, you're not yourself. And then you can reach out and get help. Let me link what you just shared. So reach out, sleep, water, stress reduction, fun, and reach out. Yes. You know, that's a wellness strategy, especially for impacted communities, but for all of us. I think we're all, it's a pressure cooker right now. So it's a good strategy of wellness. But thinking about impacted communities and communities impacted specifically by the system of white supremacy and the white supremacy that was on display in Charlottesville and that's more subversive in systems and policies. When we connect back to your expertise with addiction, what is 
the addiction ecosystem. So you have the addicted person or people, and then you've got the enablers. What's the ecosystem and what's the role of each one in that ecosystem in really fixing the illness, the, the addiction that's there? So it's a great question, which is utterly complicated. Mm-hmm. So this is uh, kind of one of the things that I try to do is to erase the line between people and people with addiction, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Think of yourself. And think about all the layers that surround you. So the first layer is a layer that you have internalized, and that's kind of what your experiences were growing up. Mm -hmm. So did you grow up in a stable environment? Did you have adults that modeled healthy behavior and helped you mitigate your risk and help you learn how to manage your emotions and help you learn how to make decisions under conditions of distress and be there for you when you needed them, right? So we call that the developmental experiences. That's your internalized layer. And then you look on the outside, you have your family, and then you have your job, and then you have the neighborhood you live in, and then you have the socioeconomic level that you achieved, and then you have any physical illnesses. And it's just, it's an onion. Mm -hmm. You can always peel back another layer, another layer, another layer. So whether you are a person that has addiction or not, you have all of those layers. When we look at the types of layers that increase the chance of a person developing addiction, Mm -hmm. biologically, addiction is like high blood pressure, diabetes, asthma. It's genetic. It runs in your DNA. So if anybody in your family, you know, your biological family had addiction, then your risk for developing addiction is higher. Mm -hmm. Psychologically, Individuals that had developmental experiences that were not stable and compassionate and loving and supportive, so like our children who are growing up homeless, mm-hmm. or our children who are growing up with parents addicted, or our children who are growing up with parents who are physically ill and die when they're young, yeah. you know, so any of those kind of developmental experience that kind of fracture the internal layer, mm-hmm. being a kid who is LGBTQIA just because of the, you know, hate that they're subjected to for the time they come out of the womb, um, those things can fracture the internal layer and that puts people at risk for developing addiction. Mm. When you start looking at the external layers, the number one risk factor for individuals who have gotten in recovery, the risk factors for relapse, we always think of the big things, like if there's some big crisis or some big stressor, they're prepared for that. Mm-hmm. But it's actually cumulative day-to-day stress. So not having enough money, working too many hours, not getting enough sleep, mm-hmm. not being in a stable, supportive relationship. And so those are all the things that affect all of us, right? So this person may go on to develop alcoholism. I may go on to develop high blood pressure depending on my DNA. Mm -hmm. This person may go on to develop an addiction to painkillers or opiates. I may go on to develop depression or anxiety or fibromyalgia. And so your DNA informs a lot of it. That's the biological aspect. Your internal layer, your developmental experiences, that's the psychological aspect. And then the social aspect is huge. That's stressors. And so when you talk about the players in the ecosystem, usually every single facet of a person who has gotten addicted to something, every facet of their life kind of drives this cycle of pain, Mm -hmm. whether that's physical pain or emotional pain. So then use the substance to get rid of that pain, have a period of oblivion, which is intoxication, and then suffer the negative consequences from using 
which leads to more physical and emotional pain, which leads you to use again, right? And so we talk about enablers, and there's a lot of ideas of what enabling is. The true definition of enabling is removing consequences that enable the behavior to continue, Mm. right? So remember I said, we're looking at that balance. The cons have to start outweighing the pros for people to move from pre-contemplation to contemplation. So if the people or the structures or the systems around them are constantly protecting them from the consequences, Mm. you're not allowing those cons to build up to a level that they outweigh the pros. And that's what moves people to the next stage, regardless of what you're talking about, exercise. You don't have mm-hmm. to be talking about cocaine or heroin or Vicodin or alcohol, right? Yeah. Exercise, right? When you're not exercising and then you go to the doctor and they're like, you're overweight. And you're like, okay. And you go to the doctor and they're like, you need to lose weight. And you're like, okay. And you go to the doctor and they're like, your blood pressure is high. Oh, that moves people to the next phase. Mm. Or like me, I'm never overweight, but trust me, I couldn't take a flight of stairs without mm-hmm. feeling like I was going to die. Okay. <laughs> did, uh-huh. did that make me start doing yoga? No, nope. it, it literally never made me start doing yoga until I couldn't turn my head to the right and I had pain down my arm. Mm-hmm. And my chiropractor was like, have you been doing your neck stretches? And I was like, no. And then the cons of not doing my neck stretches <laughs> were very clear. <laughs> built up and then I started doing my neck stretches. Right. So, <laughs> so it worked. So it's kind of like when a policeman is charged or not charged or certainly not found Absolutely. guilty of gunning down a 12-year-old boy in the park or Absolutely. or shooting a black man in Walmart who's picked up a BB gun from the shelf of the Walmart that sells those things in an open carry state and those police officers are not charged or found guilty of any crime so that absolutely the justice system is an enabler in this addiction to yes ma'am the myth of white supremacy you drew that parallel beautifully so not allowing the police officer individually or systemically right. to suffer the consequences of killing unarmed black men right enables that behavior to continue but even worse pours gasoline on the situation because mm-hmm. now you have citizens yeah. who are immediately thrown into fight or flight yes. when they encounter a police officer. And then the police officers, you know, we have pheromones and we have nonverbal body language. And so they can sense that fear. And then this person senses that fear. And you have literally a biological ratcheting up of aggression that mm. increases the chance that another unarmed person is going to get killed. Mm. So not only is it enabling that tragedy to continue, it's actually accelerating that tragedy. In encounters like that, so with John Crawford, for example, or even Akai Gurley, who walks into the stairwell of his apartment complex and is immediately gunned down by the police officer in that stairwell who is carrying biases and prejudices and a mindset based on that police officer is making judgments based on where he is and on the people who might be coming into that stairwell. Talk about implicit bias, what it is, how it manifests, and what we do about it. I love talking about implicit bias. The first point I always make about implicit bias is that we all have it, period. Mm -hmm. If you're human, 
you have implicit bias because that is the way the brain works, right? So if I show you a picture, and this is what I actually do when I teach about implicit bias. If I show you a picture of a beautiful, plump, red, shiny apple, Mm -hmm. your mouth will actually water. Okay? It's watering right now. Thank you. If I show you a picture of an apple with brown spots, right, Mm -hmm. you will literally get a negative emotional reaction. Mm -hmm. Now, that's if you grew up in the United States where all of your developmental experiences are that red, shiny apples are beautiful and delicious and apples with brown spots are rotten and sour because that's how they come from the grocery store, right? I can show that same picture. And in fact, this happened to me and it surprised me because I thought I had chosen like super universal red apple, (laughs) rotten apple kind of example. Mm -hmm. And I was showing it to the parents of one of my kids' bandmates, their little guitar singer's dad. And he's from Chile. And he was like, oh, that apple looks delicious to me. The rotten apple. Really? He was like, that looks delicious to me. That's how they come off the trees in Chile. Uh, he was like, these red, shiny apples? He's like, that's fake. That's uh, not real apples, right? right? So his implicit bias was the opposite. It was that this apple could still be delicious. The point is, if I asked you in U.S., this red shiny apple, is it delicious? You would be like, of course it's delicious, but you've never bitten that apple. So you judge that apple based on your experience with apples. It's just the way the brain works. But when we apply the same idea to humans, then we start to judge people. I'm judging you for having that initial reaction based Mm -hmm. on your own experiences. When in reality, What we need to do, and so because we judge people, then people are not motivated to recognize their own implicit biases because they will get judged, right? Mm -hmm. And so what we need to do is pull that back and say, all of us have implicit bias based on our developmental experience. So who you grew up with, what neighborhood you grew up Mm -hmm. in, what experiences you had, what you saw on TV. You know, there's a huge section of rural America, United States, that have literally never seen a black person in person. Mm -hmm. They've only seen black people robbing people and getting arrested on the news. So, of course, the first time they see a black person in person, they're going to have a fear response. Mm -hmm. Of course. I don't judge you for that fear response. What we need to do is teach people, one, how to recognize that response because your emotional brain literally reacts faster than your thinking thinking brain. brain. Mm -hmm. So when you get a visual stimulus or you smell something or you hear something, the part of your brain called amygdala, which is responsible for fear and anxiety, Mm -hmm. can respond literally in like 500 milliseconds. Mm. Your prefrontal cortex, which is responsible for thinking, yeah. takes like 1,500 milliseconds to decide what it thinks so about three that three times longer. So yes. So for that 1,000 milliseconds mm-hmm. in between, all you have is your instinctual response. And that's important because that's how humans didn't get eaten by tigers right. back in the day. <laughs> yes. Right? Yes. Like you that's saw the tiger, you don't have 1,500 milliseconds to evaluate whether the tiger looks irritated and does his belly look full. Like, Is you this a vegetarian tiger or? <laughs> exactly. Oh, I don't think I look like his type. Like you will be eaten. And so that's just the way our brain works is that emotional response will be there first. So there's implicit bias training for police officers 
There's crisis intervention training, which is an implicit bias training for police officers specifically around individuals with mental illness because they also get killed at high rates. Mm -hmm. And it's based in fear and it's based in belief that black people are violent and it's based in belief that people with mental illness are violent, right? Mm -hmm. We're raised with these beliefs and these images. So, of course, that implicit bias is there. If you train police officers to recognize their implicit bias, and then there are described, you know, interventions for how to approach that implicit bias, then that gives you the space to question that response before acting on it. Mm -hmm. And you can actually make a decision about what you're going to do. Now, are there some like totally jacked up racist police officers that are just out there torturing and killing people? Yes. Mm -hmm. But I believe that is the minority. Mm -hmm. I believe that is a small, 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 small fraction. And I believe the rest of it kind of is a culture that has developed that could be addressed if they would just take the first step of admitting there's a problem. I believe it's our inability to accept that all of us have implicit bias and for all of us to take responsibility for one, identifying our implicit biases and two, being motivated to work on them. I think the majority of police officers are regularly biased people in an ill system. Mm -hmm. And you can take it out of police, just like in America. I believe that the majority of people are regularly biased people in an ill country. Thank you, Nzinga. I introduced you as one of my dearest friends. We have known each other for a very, we'll just say a very long time. And you have a very fascinating story. Will you share with the audience, how did you find your way into psychiatry and specifically the study of addiction? Who is Nzinga? So I don't know if it's that interesting a story, but I decided really young that I wanted to be a physician, which is interesting because I didn't have any physicians in my family. So the only physician I really knew was my pediatrician. But somehow at six years old, I formed the conclusion that my pediatrician was not doing a good job. <laughs> <laughs> and we, we didn't even talk about we didn't even talk about the history of, of black people and, and the healthcare system. But I have a feeling oh my goodness. you were probably on to something. Absolutely. Yes. So I was like, oh my goodness, he's like not a good doctor. And I was like, I'm going to grow up and I'm going to be the best doctor ever. You know, like six-year-old way of thinking. And I said that uh, I wanted to be a doctor and then my mom was a teacher and she was just is a fantastic lady. And mm -hmm. so I always wanted to she be a doctor indeed. and a teacher. Mm -hmm. And so um, I set out and then, you know, we grew up through high school together mm -hmm. and then uh, went to Howard University, which were literally some of the best four years of my entire life. I had Absolutely. never been around so many black people and it fortified me. I mean, I grew up a fortified, you know, I had a fortified early childhood, mm -hmm. which is nice. I'm fortunate for that. But being at a HBCU fortified me in a way that I think could not have happened anywhere else. Um, it really <laughs> gave me the foundation to move, you know, into the Ivy League world, University of Pennsylvania, where I went to medical school with the intention to be a pediatric surgeon. Mm -hmm. But here's what's funny, right? Mm -hmm. I went through medical school. I loved it. Mm -hmm. So in, uh, before you get your MD, you have to have competency in a core of specialties in medicine. So every medical student does OB and pediatrics and emergency medicine and psychiatry, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
what I found when I did my surgical rotation, I loved being in the ER. It was amazing. But I could not get enough sleep. Mm. And I was a mean, mean, irritable, full of negative emotions. Like, just, it was terrible. Mm. And I said to myself, there is no way I could live my life in this sleep deficient state. Mm. And so I took surgery off of my list, even though I had decided from like six years old that I was going to be a pediatric surgeon. I allow myself to take it off the list. I never thought psychiatry was real medicine. Like I was one of, literally, I was like an anti-psychiatry advocate, <laughs> activist, like psychiatry sucks. And so I was like, I came to medical school to be a doctor, psychiatrist, boo. <laughs> and so psychiatry was one of the core rotations we had to do. And I was fortunate to land under this psychiatrist who was just amazing. Mm -hmm. And my practice style very much emanates from what his practice style was. He taught me the biology of the brain and how biology leads to thoughts, feelings, behaviors, and physical symptoms. And as importantly, he talked to me about the environment's ability to alter our physiological processes. Mm -hmm. So he was like, you are not being a good psychiatrist if you don't look at people biologically, psychologically, and socially. He was like, if you don't know what's going on in their lives, you're not being a good psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. If you haven't looked at physiologically what's going on in their brain, you're not being a good psychiatrist. If you don't know about their internal layer and their developmental experiences, you are not being a good psychiatrist. And he was right. Mm -hmm. And I have adapted that. And I came home and I told my roommate, I was like, dude, I might be a psychiatrist. And she was like, what? <laughs> she was like, president of the anti-psychiatry association? I was like, I know, it makes no sense. And um, I did my rotations and what I found was that for me, psychiatry could be the intersection of health and activism. Mm. So psychiatry is the stepchild of medicine, right? Because people underappreciate the biology of emotions, thoughts, and behavior. And so I loved kind of wedging in there because I teach other physicians. I teach other healthcare providers. And that reduces stigma. Mm -hmm. And then, so if psychiatry is the redheaded stepchild of medicine, addictions is the redheaded stepchild of psychiatry, right? Mm -hmm. So it was like, it was perfect. And my, my family is riddled with addiction, alcohol, cocaine, you name it, yeah. sex, you name it. Like my family is riddled with addiction. And so mm -hmm. it really... Which, though, what I really appreciate about my family that I didn't know to appreciate growing up is that every one of my family members that had addiction was never kicked out of the family, yeah. always treated compassionately. You know, like now some crazy stuff went down, <laughs> but <laughs> they knew the family would be there. And I think that probably left a mark on me that I didn't even know that it left. So yeah. anyway, long story short. I became a psychiatry, and then I started my own consulting business about 11 years ago, narcissistically named after myself, Nzinga A. Harrison, MD, LLC. <laughs> no creativity there. Sorry, I didn't even laugh so loud. <laughs> and so I do healthcare consulting and media and public speaking, and I've been fortunate to have my business take me around the world. Thank you very much. Certainly, of course, for being on the show today, but also for helping to shape me and who I am. My my son started high school today and I, I told him, you know, the friends that you choose, and it is a choice, 
the friends that you choose in high school are the friends who will shape your life going forward. Absolutely. And we had fun, as you mentioned. You know, fun is very we important. We, we had a very together. good time when we were growing mm-hmm. up, but we also really challenged each other. And I, I just, I remember doing homework together and I remember competing over grade point averages. And I remember just being pushed to the max to actually be the best person, the best scholar and person that I could be. Yes. That was because of my friends. And so I'm, I am grateful for you in Zynga Harrison. Oh, I'm grateful for you. You're going to make me teary. You know, I'm a crybaby. <laughs> <laughs> I should have put that on. That's like on my personal list. Cry periodically. You gonna put that in your profile. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That's my, my mental fitness plan. Cry periodically. <laughs> Oh, Dr. Nzinga Ajabu Harrison is a double board certified physician in addiction medicine and psychiatry. She is the chief medical officer for Anka Behavioral Health Incorporated. She's a very good friend of mine. Dr. Harrison, if folks want to find you, what is the best way for them to do that? The best way is my website, which is www.nzinga.com. Nzinga, N-Z-I-N-G-A, HarrisonMD.com. And if you can't remember that, you can just Google Nzinga Harrison and you will find me. Thank you so much. Remember to follow me at Allison R. Brown on Twitter and find the Communities for Just Schools Fund at cjsfund.org. Thank you all for listening and have a wonderful week.